Good morning. Good to see all of you. Welcome, welcome. It is a uh, good day to be here because we're all an extra hour tired. And so uh, if, if worship didn't wake you up, that's my job now <laughs> is to make sure that you're awake and engaged. Um, but I'm really excited that you're here. It's a great, um, it's just a good season. I mean, it's kind of this interesting season. John Michael alluded to it. Uh, of transition for our church, but a positive transition in the sense that we're moving from one step to the next step of what God has for us. And so you're kind of a part of that, even just by virtue that you're here. You're in that journey with us. And uh, whether or not you gave, whether or not you contributed or are going to help lay carpet or the other things that are coming, uh, thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for joining in even just this morning to that. It's funny because for some of us, church, or just showing up, whether it's you're watching at home or you're engaged right here in this room, for some of us, it's kind of a spontaneous decision. It's like, oh, it's Sunday. I probably should figure out if we're going to church or not. And you go or you don't go. For some of you, it's like a built-in rhythm. It's just you're faithful, you show up. If it's 50 degrees in here or 50 degrees outside or negative in here and negative outside, you're like, we're coming regardless. Like, we're just going to show up and be here uh, so thank you for that. Thank you for joining us in that way. And what's interesting, I was thinking about how many uh, decisions just in my own life are spontaneous instead of faithful, or, or they're kind of made out of emotion instead of obedience or obligation or duty or, or decision I've made previous. And I was thinking about uh, Lindsay and I a couple years ago, right around this time, we're pretty aggressively saving for a trip. We decided like, okay, so we don't have kids yet. We hadn't moved into our house yet, so we're still in an apartment. We had what you call flexibility. <laughs> some of you are like, oh, yeah, I remember life when it was flexible. I remember when I could do that. But we had it, and, and some very wise people in our life warned us, hey, if you're going to take a trip or you want to get something done, you got to do it now. Once you have a kid or once you move into the house or once you start renovations, you're not going to be able to go anywhere. And so we thought about it. We prayed about it. Uh, we asked for a lot of advice about it. Where should we go? What should we do? And so we decided we're going to take two weeks and spend it in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> Said no one ever, right? <laughs> None of you are planning that trip, okay? If you're from Ohio, I'm sorry. I'm making fun of you. I'm, I'm ditching you. Yeah, I see hands raised. I'm sorry. Um, no knock on Columbus. Let's just make up a day. Arkansas, okay? No, don't go to Arkansas. None of you are from there. I have a pretty good feeling. So Arkansas. No, I'm just kidding. What we decided to do was take a trip to the French and Italian Alps. It was something I'd always wanted to do. And so we spent about a week or half, week and a half or so in Chamonix, France, uh, which is behind me. And, and so it was an incredible trip. What I think is funny, though, is that what really made that trip work is that we had to aggressively save and aggressively make some pretty sacrificial financial decisions before we ever got to live that. Uh, it's funny because when you make a big financial decision, there's a thousand smaller decisions that are just made for you, right? You're not wondering, hey, can we go out to eat every night, which is what John Gravett would love to do. And he has an awesome partner in, in crime that says, actually, you can't do that. You remember, we're going to France in, in August. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, because I'm such an impulse. I'm a spender. I'm an emotional uh, money person, and uh, I'm married to someone who's not in that category, and it's actually a beautiful gift. Uh, and it doesn't matter where you fall because there were decisions uh, to not upgrade our car, to not move into our house. Like there were things that we had to put off because we had made a pretty big financial decision. We decided we're going to spend a couple thousand and and go to France for two weeks. Like it was a huge decision we had to make. 
And it's funny, uh, when it comes to money, all of us have different, what I just would describe as internal tensions. Spend, save. Give to this, give to that. First child, second child. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm just playing it out here. But there's internal things. There's moments you have to decide. All of us are entrusted with stewardship and resources, and we all have to make a decision about how we're going to do it. And when you resolve to do something, when you finally make the decision to take the trip or to buy the car or to put the down payment down on the house, again, there's a thousand other decisions that get made for you. There's things you say yes to, and there's a lot of things you then have to say no to. It's funny because I've sat across the table with so many of you and there are certain goals that you have financially. Like there's a place you want to be. If you're 40, you, most of us are smart enough to be thinking about, where do I want to be when I'm 60? If you're 60, you're thinking about, where do I want to, what kind of legacy do I want to leave when I'm 80? Uh, when, if you're 15, you're probably not thinking about this at all. But if you're 15, you may be thinking about, how do I spend money wisely? How do I actually create a life of generosity 20 years from now? When you're 35, Maybe you're 35 and you've got a young family and you're figuring some stuff out, but you're already starting to think, what do I want life to be like when I'm 55? What, what do I want my financial goals to be to get there? Maybe for you it's a house or it's a new truck or you're just trying to figure out some things for the future. Uh, can I ask you a question? Many of us know the financial goals. What about your giving goals for 20 years from now? Have you ever sat down as a family or as a couple or just as your, as your individual self right now and figured out, what, what do I want to be giving? What do I want to be contributing to the kingdom of God? What do I want my life to be like financially in 20 years? See, most of us think about the first question, and very few of us ever wrestle with the second. We make decisions based on the first, <laughs> our financial goals, but we very rarely make decisions about giving goals. And I think it taps into something that I experience on, like I shared vulnerably, on a daily basis. And some of you experience this just in life as a whole, is that we tend to overestimate emotion and underestimate obedience. Let me say that one more time. We tend to overestimate emotion, the impulse, the moment, the feel-good story or the uh, extra bonus that creates the ability to be generous, but we sometimes underestimate the actual obedience factor when it comes to our money and to our generosity, when it comes to our stewardship and our financial world. And that's what we really have been talking about the last couple of weeks is how do you obey God with money? Uh, We've called it estimate, but really it's not about just making estimations like we've described. It's about how to follow God with this incredible resource called money. And I want to take you to, again, we were in 2 Corinthians 8. I want to take you to chapter 9. This is maybe my favorite passage on generosity in all of Scripture. I, I just can't, I've been bursting to share this passage with you. I just can't wait. And so if you have a Bible or device or just something to, to follow along with, we're going to kind of interact with different parts of this chapter, but we're going to start in verse 6. And this is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth about their generosity. Remember last week we talked about the Macedonians and the powerful example of generosity, or here we're going to talk about uh, the Corinthians. So here is what Paul says. He goes, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, 
See, do you notice how Paul is interacting with multiple ideas here, right? You make a decision. That's a logical, rational thing. You make a decision. You put it on the Excel sheet. You put it in the bank account. You make a decision in your heart to give, but it still takes a a component of our emotions in our heart, right? You decided in your heart. You didn't just sit down with a piece of paper and decide, here's what I'm going to do. It actually takes our heart to be engaged in generosity. He says, don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't give because you have to and you hate the process. And also don't give because someone in your life told you you should give. Don't give because John says you should give or there's an obligation you feel when you walk into this uh, gym experience. Uh, Don't give because you think that's going to get you some kind of inner circle moment with God. I mean, don't, don't give reluctantly and don't give under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. God loves when you give and you can smile about it. God loves when you give and you know that you're making an eternal investment. That's not worthless. That's not going to be temporary. And he says, here's why you can do that, because God is able to bless you abundantly. Verse 8, so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, right? All things, all times, and all that you really do need, you will abound in every good work. And he quotes a psalm here, and then he keeps writing about this in verse 10. He says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest, the harvest of your righteousness. Notice this is not the prosperity gospel. This is not an easy, quick formula. If I give to God, he's going to give me a lot more back. It's actually a heart transformation that happens when you figure this out and you've truly learned what it means to be generous. You're more concerned about the kingdom return, which is the harvest of your righteousness, than you are, what do I get out of this? And this is the reason. This is kind of the therefore in this passage. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that so that you can be generous on every occasion, emotional or not. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And this is what he encourages the Corinthians with here in this next verse. This is so easy for us to miss. He says, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but also in overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you've proved yourselves. He's talking about this gift. He's trying to raise funds for this Jerusalem relief effort here in the church of Corinth, which was an incredibly wealthy city that had incredible just temptation to hold on to their money, to hoard and control. He says, others will praise God for the obedience that has accompanied your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. It's not just one direction, it's, it's multiple And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. See, generosity starts and ends with God. It's a heart change. It happens from an encounter with God, and then it leads to other people experiencing God. And then at the end of the day, generosity in its purest form is a template. It's a framework for the world to see how the gospel really works. That you don't deserve it, and yet you're given it. You don't deserve love, yet Jesus laid himself down for you. You don't deserve mercy, but God found a way through Jesus Christ to give you infinite mercy, mercies that actually renew every single day that you wake up. You don't deserve the compassion of God. I don't deserve the compassion of God, but it's the kindness of Jesus. It's laying his life down. It's the generosity of God that opens the door for me to experience compassion every day. 
and for you to give and experience compassion every day. What I love is that the Macedonians had decided in their hearts to give. And he's saying, this is the model, Corinth. This is how you get there. You have to make decisions. You almost have to pre-decide. Here's how I'm going to obey God in this area. And the temptations for you and I in our culture are numerous. I don't have to tell you that. I mean, the newest thing, the uh, desire to control or manipulate how we spend money, uh, the desire to just continually go up in income without ever increasing our giving goals. I mean, all those things, we feel those. And if you're walking through the area that Corinth was located in, you'd feel uh, temptations and pressure too. I mean, you'd walk by a, a huge monument to the goddess Demeter. Demeter really is this example that Jesus is, or not Jesus, wow, Paul is pulling from in 2 Corinthians 9. She was the goddess of agriculture. And so in the Roman Empire, when you saw Demeter, it was a reminder. This idol would remind you, hey, you don't provide for yourself. This chick does. <laughs> like, and, and Corinth was in a wealthy, affluent area. They, they would, didn't have crops that they were tending in, in the middle of this huge city. No, but they had friends and family. They had uh, needs that were based on agricultural societies around them, food being an obvious one. Uh, so this was before Lunchables, where you actually had to collect a harvest and figure all that out. Like, and so they obviously connected that, okay, if I need seed, if I need food, it's going to come from her. So I've got to pray and sacrifice and make sure that Demeter's taken care of, whatever that means. And, and Paul is saying, you, if that's how you think about it, if you think you basically pave your own way, you are the one who creates income, you actually are the one that creates your own resources, you're missing the point. It's God who supplies seed for the sower. It's God who provides the harvest. If your heart is misguided, it often because you're serving an idol. If generosity is hard, it may be because there's something else that's gripping your heart. And so as he writes in verse 12 and 15, some of you already caught this, Paul's emphasis is not on the money itself. And I've been in a church setting where it was about the money itself. I've been to those places where it was about, give me as much as you possibly can so I can look good, so my car can be nicer, so that I feel better about myself. Paul's saying, no, no, no. When, when you make it about the money itself, you miss the entire point of all of the teachings of Scripture on generosity. Corinth knew this too. In Corinth, once something's really interesting. I, uh, you may draw some modern connections here. But basically, when the government or the ruling structure of a certain region would notice that there are people below a certain line of economy, they would ask the really, really wealthy people to pay, to be public benefactors, to sign up for a year, essentially, to pay for their needs. It was this idea of patronage that you see all throughout the first century, not just in Corinth. And so it wasn't the Corinthians didn't know how to be generous and to give their money away to people that needed it. They were familiar with this rhythm. But, but Paul is saying, you don't just sign up for a year. No, we're trying to create in this Corinthian culture a lifetime of obedience to God. We're, we're trying to create a rhythm here. And so one of the questions I ask when I approach a text like this is, how do I do that? How can I build obedience for a lifetime? How can I actually set up rhythms in my life to make sure that even when I don't feel like it, 
that I actually am still modeling generosity? And the answer is this old word that some of you have not used since last year when we preached on this, tithing. This is really simple practice. In fact, as you look through the very beginning pages of Scripture and you trace it all the way through throughout the New Testament, we find this idea of tithing. And tithing is not just limited to 10%, which if you grew up in church, that's kind of what I think of. I think of tithing and it's basically a percentage that I have in my mind. And in fact, what happens in the Old Testament is there's three specific tithes that would be closer to like 23% of your income. So if you think 10% is bad, just picture God commanding you, say, hey, next year, just have a little budget meeting with your spouse and uh, 23% of your income is going to the church or going to a ministry or whatever. That's the Old Testament idea of a tithe. It's much higher than 10%. We say, well, how, how does that play out in the New Testament? Obviously, Jesus came. We have the cross. We have the resurrection. How does all this work? Does Jesus say that we should tithe? And I have a lot of people uh, in my life, and some of you have great arguments and, and reasons why you, you don't tithe. And you don't do that because Jesus isn't super clear. In fact, one of the only times Jesus addresses the idea of tithing is in Matthew 23, 23. We're not going to read this, but it's a great chapter, a conversation for you to go back to, to read maybe even this week, that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. And what he's essentially saying is, okay, you're a good Jewish person, you tithe. It was just assumed that you gave a tenth or even more of your percent of your income to the local temple or the ministry or the, or the mission that was happening in that area. We just assume. Jesus says, okay, he affirms tithing in this conversation, but then raises the bar. Jesus affirms tithing and then adds to it. And he actually says, uh, sure, you maybe tithe, but you're neglecting faithfulness. You're neglecting doing justice. You're neglecting reconciliation. You're neglecting having a heart for the poor and, and the foreigner and stranger among you. You're neglecting really what makes generosity godly. It's never just about the percent, never just about the money. And so I was thinking about this, and I've been a pastor long enough to hear a lot of reasons why you shouldn't tithe. I hear a lot. I've got multiple arguments that I just remember, okay, like I know we're going into this with this person. And which is fine. Like, I welcome that. I think there's room for that. But I could only think, and I really wrestled this week with, how do I preach on this? Because Jesus does not explicitly ever say, you need to give 10% of your money. But I think there's incredible reasons why that's a great starting point for just discipleship and formation. So I had to boil it down to three. I'm just going to give them to you rapid fire and I'll stir the pot and we can talk about it later. How about that? So there's really three reasons, if I think about it, why you should not give, you should not tithe. The first reason is because you don't believe in the mission and vision of the local church or the ministry that you're part of. Like if in your heart, you don't believe that we should passionately pursue zero lives unchanged by Jesus Christ, it's probably better to spend your money somewhere where you can actually buy in. So I'm letting you off the hook there. But if you don't believe in the vision and mission of the church, you probably shouldn't give. And that's what Paul is pushing on the Corinthians. He's saying, you haven't created a lifetime and a lifestyle of obedience, even though you say you believe in these things. Generosity, tithing is the way that you demonstrate that you believe in the vision and mission of that local church. The second reason is that you hate giving. You resent giving. You just hate it. Every time you give some money away, it rips out part of your soul. You don't like it. You don't think it's biblical. You just do not enjoy the process of giving. 
I have never met someone who that is true of, by the way. If that's you, can we meet? I want to take you to lunch, figure out your psychology. I'm just curious about you because giving just naturally brings about joy. Uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's some of Jesus' last words on the planet, or Paul's last words on the planet. And I think uh, you resent giving as a rhythm. You just don't enjoy it. You probably should not give. You should probably just take a moment, step, step back, and ask Jesus, what do you want to do in my heart? And the third is that you just want to control your money. And almost everybody in the room is tempted with that third reason. I just want to control it. I, I don't like giving it away. I like how it makes me feel. I like how that number makes me feel on my bank account statement. I like how uh, I know exactly where everything is going, and I don't have any room uh, for any kind of spontaneous moments or decisions. If, if someone is homeless, I'm sorry. I've already got my budget set. You, got, you don't get any of that. Like I just, I like to control it. But I want to ask you, I want to kind of reframe generosity for us for just a moment. This is something my mom actually instilled in me when I was really young, is that the question is not, how little does God require me to give? <laughs> when we approach tithing, that's the exact question we get hung up on. Well, John, how little? I mean, you said it was 23% and then it was 10. Well, what if I only give five? What if I give one? What if I don't give at all? What if I give to a different, what if I give to a nonprofit that I like more than the church? Whatever. The question is not, how little does God require me to give? It must be, how generous can I become? That's a totally different question. One is a bare minimum question. Remember the rich young ruler? <laughs> he, he goes to Jesus, his incredible rabbi, and says, hey, teacher, just come here for a second. How can I get to heaven? <laughs> how, how do I just do the very bare minimum? And, and Jesus responds and confronts this question, and, and essentially, if I can modernly paraphrase that, says it's not about the bare minimum. Discipleship is never about how little do I have to do. Do I just pray and then I'm good? Can I just get a, like a fire insurance card for heaven and just make sure I don't do anything too bad and then hopefully I'll get there? No, the question is, how do I grow every single day in discipleship to Jesus? You don't grow on bare minimum questions. Your marriage doesn't get better just doing the bare minimum. Your friendships don't grow when you just say, how little do we have to meet for lunch this year? Like, <laughs> what's the bare minimum we have to do and just still stay friends? Like if you ask that, those friends would not be your friends next year because we don't grow off bare minimum questions and that's how generosity works too. It's not how little does God forcing me to give, but how generous can I become? And that's why I think tithing, whether it's 10% or more or you're wrestling with the percentage as a whole, it's, an, it's a rhythm of obedience. It's not a hill to die on. You, I, I would never gun to my head. I would say, if, if you're qu making me question, is Jesus Lord, did he rise from the dead? I'll die for that belief. But I'm not going to die on 10% because Jesus never explicitly says that. But here's what I know and hear me. 10% is a great place to start. It's a starting point. It's not a finish line. It's a starting line for generosity in our lives. It helps us just wedge out a little bit of the materialism and greed that it's so easy. It sneaks up on us that Jesus tells us to watch out for. And the church, we're not great at this. You know, as of a couple of years ago, the, the latest research shows that, that Christians give less than 3% of their income to any local church or ministry. So I don't think the, the question is 10%, right? I don't think we're wrestling with, is it 10 or 15 I think it's a deeper work God wants to do in our hearts and to free us from asking the bare minimum questions. Um, I remember this 
this quote from college, and then someone recently brought it up to me. It's John Wesley, the founder of the denomination that Center is a part of. He writes this. He says, talking about money and finances, ask not how much of my money will I give to God, but how much of God's money will I keep for myself? Right? It's a different version of the first question. But when we reframe how that looks and we decide, okay, I'm going to make this about obedience, not emotions in the moment, it changes everything else. It shifts decision-making. It makes what you're going to buy a little bit simpler because you start to think, okay, if God put me in charge of a $100,000 a year income, how would he want me to steward that? If I gave my $100,000 income to someone else and said, this is designated for the kingdom of God. Will you please steward that for me? What decisions would that person make? And am I making those same decisions? It's not about how little does God require me to give. When that emotion pops up, it's actually about how obedient, how generous can I become with my money. I remember sitting across the table from a couple who attends our church, serves in our church a couple years ago, and they had just made a comment to me kind of in passing uh, about how God had really shaped their lives through tithing and really changed just their family tree, their legacy through giving and committing to the local church. And I think it was interesting because uh, I was wrestling with this personally because Lindsay and I had just moved. We were in a transition. We had a lot of, as any move does, a lot of unexpected costs come up. And I was really wrestling with this. I sat across the table from them and just asked them a couple questions. And I want to pull out just a couple of the phrases that they shared with me that I think some of us need to hear. And then I want to share just a brief story that they shared with me. A couple phrases. First phrase, he commented, as you grow in Christ, you want to give more. That's what we were talking about, right? As you grow in Christ, generosity becomes infectious. You start to love it. You start to get a kingdom perspective on your finances. Phrase two. It's a true blessing to tithe, and we have never regretted it. Some of us need to hear that. When you take a step of faith, when you take a risk, specifically financially, which no one in your job is going to congratulate you for giving 10%. No one's going to do that. No one's going to do that. But on the other side of it, will you regret it? Their answer would be no. We've never regretted it. And so many of you would echo that. They shared this story. They had a mission trip coming up, and it was kind of a step of faith financially for them to take it. It was a couple thousand dollars, and they had a payment due of $700. It was one of those moments, and I've been in those moments. I shared a story a few years ago. Lindsay had a very similar encounter uh, moment with money and just having a payment due for a mission trip. Well, they stepped out in faith. They wrote the check. They sent in the $700, and basically were like, what do we do now? (laughs) We need $700 to fill in that gap. And so through a bunch of family circumstances, they had this estate sale and they were having a garage sale. And I don't know about garage sales in your family. In my family, they make like $10. Okay. Like they never are as fun or as rewarding (laughs) as you want them to be. It doesn't matter how many colored stickers you put on what people still ask, can I buy this for 10 cents? Like it just, it never ends up being a lot of money. Well, they had a garage sale And she was telling me this story where essentially they finished counting and just kept counting the money, kept counting the money. It was $699 and like 93 cents, exactly a a couple cents short of the the money that she needed to pay that. And then was able to go on the trip and, and God really moved through 
the trip. That would not have happened. And they would tell you this. This would not have happened if they were not in a rhythm of tithing and in obedience to God. It just wouldn't happen. This is exactly what Paul is saying to Corinth, right? It's, it's the harvest of righteousness that happens when you consistently sow for a lifetime. You don't just decide, I'm going to give when I feel like it. Uh, some of you took the $5 challenge last week. I've heard a couple of the stories already. One of the stories was uh, a family banded together and said, hey, we got to go to Meyer, pick up some groceries after they go to Meyer, and, and they pull their money together to pay for the person in the self-checkout in front of them. You know what that's doing and saying to just your family? It's building a rhythm of obedience to God with money. Because I didn't ask what you did with the money. Our staff wasn't tracking you down and trying to find out, where did they spend those $5? Like, you could have spent it on yourself. You could have bought lunch. I have no idea. But when we decide to be generous in that, not just ask, how much can I hold? It says, great, here's another $5. It's asking, how much can I give? We end up getting blessed in the process. And that's, John Michael alluded to this, that's what our giving does at Center. I mean, think about the last years. We're kind of working through still this pandemic, I mean, your giving paid for counseling scholarships for marriages in trouble. The money you give every week supports single moms through Hope Unexpected who don't have a place to go, who are, who are survivors of domestic abuse. Your, your giving does that. It's a harvest of righteousness. Your giving supports a local school that where the majority of their kids are on free or reduced lunch because their family can't afford to pay for lunch. Your family does that. Your giving does that. Your giving helped buy groceries during the pandemic when for some people it created incredible food insecurity. Your giving did that. Your giving helped build a wheelchair ramp for, for a cancer patient in our community and pay for the supplies. Your giving does that. Even this Gideon campaign that we're in the journey of, and uh, October 1 is coming really quick, so thank you for your faithful giving from last October. And as we're working through the process and the budgeting, I'm just, every time I'm reminded, God, thank you that we have people who just give out of obedience. Sometimes it's hard, and I've been there. Sometimes it's not fun, and it's not super positive emotions, but it's faithfulness. It's obedience. It, it's creating a lifestyle, life of obedience I'm going to say something that um, some of you may not understand. I'm just going to risk it and say it anyway. As I look at Lindsay and I's marriage in our journey, I think God, I really believe that God has kept us on the same page, stayed connected through some difficult moments, through some family crisis, through some financial turmoil, because we've committed to to tithe in this area, to be obedient and, and to create a rhythm for ourselves. It's not a perfect formula because it doesn't always feel good, but I know that God is working in it. And you and I know, and I've said this before, divorce, the number one reason for divorce in America is money fights and money problems. And so when you commit to God in this area, you are committing to a better marriage, to a better family, to a better system, to a better life as an individual, as a single person. To be honest, when we decided to start tithing, I was trying to get into my head this past week of like, why do we start doing that? I mean, we've done it for the last seven years, and the couple that I shared with you has only been doing it for about seven or eight years now, but I was thinking about that and thinking, well, really, the, the reason I started tithing to my local church is because I felt guilty for not doing it. It was a terrible reason. In fact, it's really bad when you work on staff at that church, and there, you know your boss at some point is going to ask you, hey, are you like you fulfilling all the membership commitments or whatever? And one of them was 10% tithing. And I was like, 
I do not, I'm so scared of authority. I do not want that person to come into my office and be like, hey, I saw that you're not giving anything. Like, and so I said, Lindsay, we got to give. We made like, again, 800 bucks a month or something crazy low like that. And so we decide, okay, let's give. Let's set it up. Let's make sure we do not want to have that conversation. But over the years, that one decision of obedience to God, as bad of a motivation as guilt is, as bad as a motivation of being accused by your authority or your direct supervisor of not giving is, our reasons have gotten much more spiritual over the years. And the fruit of that rhythm of tithing and obedience to God in this area, it's hard for me to describe to you just the harvest of righteousness that we feel. Giving towards the Gideon campaign, being able to support our friends who are serving God overseas. I mean, all those kind of things. They stem from that very simple decision to just obey God, to not just be driven by our emotions or this year we can give, this year we won't, but just to say, we're going to be disciplined in this and just see God work through it. And so there's this Greek word that comes up in this passage multiple times. It's the Greek word eulogia. And some of you have already made the the connection to a word that we use around funerals. It's the idea of eulogy. It's, it's really telling the story of a legacy of a lifetime. Paul uses this word for generosity. This is the word behind some of these, these generosity and you'll be generous in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And that word moves me because, number one, I don't think Paul ever knew that we would talk about eulogies or funerals. But when you're sitting at a funeral, and I, and I was at one a couple weekends ago, I was sitting there, and the stories they told were not ones about just superfluous things or really funny decisions or mistakes. They talked about the kind of person their dad was. Story after story of his heart, the way he worshipped, the way he served people, the way he interacted at his trucking job, the way he prayed for people in his sales job. And I think about that, that, that is, a eulogy is a perfect description of the story of someone's lifetime. And when Paul talks about generosity, what I think is interesting, this word for me just makes a modern connection in my own mind of your money will tell a story. When you leave this planet and pass on to eternity, Your story, your money will tell a story. And for me, can I just speak candidly as your pastor for just a second? As someone who's in this with you, I want your story to tell of obedience and generosity and and constant gratitude to God for what he's given you and I. And I'm in this too, right? We're in the journey together. I'm figuring this out. And there's moments where it's like, can we reduce this by a percent this month or we have this coming up? And Lindsay and I have decided we're not going to do that. We're not going to have those conversations. We've committed to obey God and we're going to continue to obey God in this area. And we haven't always got it right. But we're trying to tell a story of obedience for a lifetime. And that's God's heart for all of us. And so you may be asking, what do I do with that? How do I move from where I'm at now to maybe that life, that, that story of obedience For me, it really begins with the idea of surrendering your money to God. It really begins with saying, I'm going to lay these things down that are so easily can become idols in my own life. For some of you, it could be really, really practical, though. 
your next step may be, okay, I'm getting out of debt. <laughs> I am enslaved. This car is crushing me. Uh, we can't actually afford this. We need to step back. We need to trim out some of our, our life. We need to put our budget on an Excel sheet and we need to stick to that. We don't need to have John moments of spending 20 extra dollars here or there. We need to just stay locked in. That may be your step, get out of debt. And you need to go search YouTube for Dave Ramsey podcasts and look up all of them and listen to all of them and do what he says. You need to do that. For you, it may be as simple as looking at what are some of the the things I run to that are costing me this lifetime of obedience. Maybe for you, it's a credit card. You may have a credit card that no one else knows about and you're just racking up spending. Anytime there's pain, anytime there's hardship, anytime there's a tough day at work, you just spend, 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 spend. You need to disconnect your card from Amazon Prime or you need to cut it up, do something. You just cut that out of your life. Maybe you need to sign up for online giving or ask God, what... What, is, what are my giving goals? Maybe sit down and have a real conversation over a cup of coffee and say, what kind of life, what kind of story, legacy am I leaving? Maybe it means investing in someone else this week. It may not mean throwing money at something, but taking someone out for coffee, paying for their lunch, knowing someone who's at work, maybe someone on your list, you're praying to invite to Easter, you're praying for them to come to Jesus. You, you just need to set all that aside and say, you know, I'm just going to invest in that person. I'm going to invite them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to buy them their favorite coffee or their soda, whatever. I'm just going to be generous towards them. No strings attached. I don't know what your step is, but I do know that God's heart is that we wouldn't just live off emotion, but we would live for obedience for a lifetime. We would follow him and be faithful to him. And so we're going to sing a song, but I want to pray for you knowing that, uh, we're kind of all on this journey together. And uh, before we pray, I just, I found this card on my desk this week, and it was actually in, in this passage, ironically. It literally fell out of my Bible. And uh, on it, some of you remember this, about two years ago, we had a couple days of prayer and fasting uh, in a certain month, I think it was October, maybe 2018 or 2019, about a building. And on it were five specific prayer requests. Number one, clarity on location for a permanent facility, not another rental, but like a permanent place. Number two, square footage to accommodate 200 people. Whew, just made it. Three, financial provision that God would miraculously provide. Fourth, supernatural connections within our community, people that could get us into locations or spaces that weren't on the market. And fifth, a deeper discipleship to Jesus for all of us in this process. I look at that and I look back, I thank God that all five of those things were hit in such a clear way over this last year. But it would not have made any difference if God answered every one of those prayers and we hadn't built a lifestyle of obedience together as a community. Like the answer to those prayers would stop if we decided we're not gonna sacrifice, we don't wanna risk, John, how, do we, how little do we have to give to this to make it happen? That's not the question we asked. The question was, God, what, what do you want me to do with the money, the resources, stewardship that you've, you've given to me? So that's the hope, that, that's what we're for. And so let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you are present and real. And we ask that you'd move in this area. God, help us where we are 
off track. Help us where it's so easy to put other things first. Help us to truly surrender everything we have, money included, to you. And we want to see you work in that. So thank you. We pray in Jesus' name.